Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This is Curiously Enough. We're on episode number three this week, and oh my gosh, I'm so excited to share this conversation. But first, I wanted to take a moment to express our gratitude because the love and support from y'all that are listening has been so meaningful and it should not go unrecognized. Your your comments, your feedback, just the fact that you're listening. I mean, we've never made a podcast before. This is our first time. And so to have you on this journey with us means so much. Um, and that's the point. We want to do this with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please continue to comment and give us feedback. It's so, it's so helpful. And um, we love you guys. So this week, we're talking to somebody special, Andrew Chapman. His links are all below in the info of the podcast. Be sure to check him out at wildheartmeditationcenter.org. And he has a podcast as well. And it's also called Wild Heart Meditation Center. Be sure to check it out. It's all about Buddhism and the mind and the self. So do yourself a favor and go to that podcast and give it a listen and show Andrew Chapman some support and enjoy this week's episode. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce Andrew Chapman. Andrew is currently the guiding teacher and director of programming at Wild Heart Meditation Center in Nashville. Andrew manages and facilitates weekly meditation groups, monthly workshops, and intensive study courses. Both his personal and professional work have been supported through intensive training and educational curriculums related to mindfulness-based stress reduction, dialectical behavioral therapy, and Buddhist practice. Within the last few years, Andrew received his master's degree in social work as an addictions and mental health counselor. Andrew also graduated from a -a two-and-a-half-year community Dharma leadership training through Spirit Rock Meditation Center, where he received authorization to teach the Dharma. Andrew has been a guest lecturer at Vanderbilt University, University of Tennessee, Belmont University, and Meharry Medical College, where he speaks to students, faculty, and mental health staff. Currently, Andrew offers mindfulness-based therapeutic groups and workshops at several mental health and addiction treatment centers in the greater Nashville area, specializing in adolescent and youth treatment. Andrew has also presented at the Nashville Psychotherapy Institute discussing therapeutic interventions for millennials, approaches to working with young adult populations. Andrew has spent the past several years developing intensive trainings and workshops related to the intersection of Western and Buddhist psychology for dedicated practitioners, as well as professionals in the fields of education and mental health. Oh, awesome. I want to talk about all of that. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Grace. Yeah. Of course. Thanks for being here. So let's go back to the beginning, I guess. When did this all begin with, uh, which came first, Buddhism or therapy? Well, I would say that I got into Buddhism through recovery, through being in, in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. So I think that's really what came first is my personal experience. Um, And then, you know, a few years into recovery, I started struggling with mental health issues, mostly depression. And, you know, I was interested in finding ways of coping with depression that, um, you know, 
being a sober person, something that would help me to maintain my recovery, but also just explore spirituality, something I've always been interested in. So I found a meditation group and got into Buddhism. And after doing that, I'd previously been studying music business and production. Um, I switched my career path to social work and focused on, you know, starting that career and getting involved and working in the mental health community. So I'd say that, you know, for me, the recovery was really what laid the groundwork. And then I got into Buddhism and then decided to dedicate my life to helping others. Awesome. Yeah. So your personal experience definitely influenced the next step in your profession. Um, did you drop out of or, or change your major? How did that happen? Cause you're at Belmont, right? Yeah, I was at Belmont University. No, I graduated. Um, I'd always been interested in music since I was a kid. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, always in hindsight, to look back on, you know, like adolescence and to see how some of the things that we do today, the, the seeds were planted back then. And for me, I was always interested in music, but I was really interested in the community aspect. I always played in bands and went to shows with all my bandmates and we would you know spend all of our time together um and in community and so those two things were maturing in me from a young age and i'd uh, been interested in playing music and so i went to school for music and not quite sure you know what i wanted to do and i graduated from belmont actually and started touring and playing some music and then um, once the depression kind of set in is when I started practicing Buddhism and, uh, changed my career path. So I went back to school to get a master's in social work. Okay. Awesome. That's so funny. And my story is a little similar as far as doing music and then changing to right. something a little different, but it, it's funny. Yeah. I find that when I had a, a, a similar, um, I guess, revelation, you could call it, when I realized I was doing music for a certain purpose, and I could still fulfill that purpose by doing something different. So like yours was totally. community, and mine was like connection and sharing vulnerability. And right. I think it, in this day and age, maybe this is a whole nother topic, and we can get into it, but there's a lot of pressure on finding your purpose and finding your passion. And I wonder what would happen right. if I just looked at what really interests us that like, what does it do to us? What does it make us feel? Um, because then the doors open. Cause I was like, Oh, I don't totally. need to do music to feel that way and to, to um, fulfill those needs, which is, I just like right. hearing that in your story. Yeah. And likewise, I, I resonate with what I've heard of your story as well. And I think, you know, for me, you hit the nail on the head is there's all this emphasis in our culture to find our purpose. Like we have one purpose and like we're so focused on our careers, you know, and, and becoming some role for our life. And I think a lot of us have a lot of interests and I almost don't even like that uh, way of framing, you know, purpose and finding what that is for ourselves. I, I like it better to look at, you know, exploring interests. And I think a lot of us have interests from a very young age, a lot of different interests. And 
Um, what I've been fortunate to be able to do is to you know, keep coming back to those same interests. I was interested in music, interested in community and creativity. Uh, and these are things that have culminated into my profession today, which is you know, beautiful that it ended up that way. Um, but yeah, I think we're, we're hyper-focused a little too much on finding like our sole purpose. Like there's one thing that we're going to do. Mm. Yeah. And it's, I, I don't know where that comes from. And I know that having to pick a major in college, maybe that's for me at least where it started to like, um, kind of tunnel vision started to come in and I still knew I wanted to do music, but there's plenty of people that don't know. And I remember being told when I was younger, uh, you're so lucky that you know what you want to do. And I was like, you don't get it. Like, I feel like I have to do this because I've been doing it so long. It's, it's not really. (laughs) Um, right. So there's like the flip side of that too is like, well, I'm doing this because you're telling me I'm good at it. So I'm just going to keep doing it. Um, right. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing. And I think our day and age, maybe people are starting to open up to that idea a little bit more. I'm at least seeing it with uh, my age group now, just a little bit more uh-huh. of like, look at what interests you and follow those things. And maybe you'll find a career, but if not, it doesn't really matter because you're doing things that interest you. It's not about, right. you know, the title or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And when we're young, we need time to explore, you know, like even some of the like early infancy research on attachment theory is about having a caregiver that's stable enough and consistent enough that their children can explore the world and develop a sense of autonomy, which is how they feel safe in the world. And, you know, that exploration continues throughout our entire life, but especially during young adulthood. And that's something that I think the institutions have gotten horribly wrong, which is this kind of model of the university, the four-year school and declaring a major. And there's all this pressure to feel like we need to be confident in our trajectory um, when so often for young adults, that's not the case. You know, people dropping out of school or going to two or three different schools changing their majors multiple times or getting their degree and then finding they want to do something else. And, you know, and I, I hope that universities will start to model. And I think we're seeing it a little bit more, especially with adult learning programs, but more eclectic, diverse options for degrees, you know, that can actually be recognized and translate into careers you see this especially with millennials, and we get a lot of flack, but I'm an Oregon Trail millennial, which is an older, <laughs> an older millennial, but I identify and get a lot of flack for being indecisive or not growing up quick enough. But I think a lot of that is actually we're rethinking, especially with the techno- technological advances we have, we're rethinking the ways that industries operate. And, um, you know, I like to think of millennials as kind of, the term would be renaissance man, but renaissance people, you know, and having a lot of different interests and wanting to explore those. So uh, not to get too far on that tangent, but yeah, I think that's definitely been a part of my experience for sure. Yeah, no, no, I'm glad that it came up because it is, 
it's so important to discuss and it's it's a lot easier to talk about it than to experience it because you kind of it take you have to risk a lot in order to go after what you want instead of being secure in a nine to five or something like that. Um, but the rewards are great, but I think, yeah, it needs to be discussed a little more so people know it's possible. Um, whether you're an entrepreneur or, or not, you can still go after something that you create, you know? Um, right. So I think that's a cool topic, but as far as, so Buddhism kind of came after your personal experience. Did therapy kind of get intertwined based on your personal experience as well? Or was that just something you saw that really intrigued you? Well, it's kind of a culmination of what I was going through at the time when I decided to go forward with the master's program. Um, I was really, my primary interest, especially at that time was Buddhism. And I, um, I was fascinated by Buddhist psychology, even from a young age and kind of Eastern philosophy. And I had gone through school and I'd been working at a, I graduated, I was playing music and had started to work at a treatment center in the mental health field, substance abuse treatment center, which is not what I wanted to do. Uh, be, being a recovery per, a person in recovery, it was an easy job to get. And this was like during the height of the economic recession around 2010. So, you know, I got this job in the mental health field. I was into Buddhism. I was still exploring music. Um, and I figured, well, I actually remember having the conscious thought, all I want to do is help people in a creative way and be able to be of service, you know, and get paid for it. <laughs> and so I was like, well, what's the profession of helping people? And it's social work. So and it's a longstanding profession. Uh, it has a really cool, unique history. It's one of the, it's, it is the longest standing helping profession. So I just figured, all right, I'll go to school for that. So my interest in mental health really came almost as like a career path. It was, I'm interested in Buddhism. I'm in recovery. I want to help people in a creative way. And this is the way that I could do that and make money. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, no, that's really neat. So it, it kind of found you as you were looking for it in a way. Right. And I had a few friends that were social workers or going to school and there's just some really rad people that are in the profession that do international social work and help folks and, um, you know, in countries where people need resources and they go to the source. There are people that do counseling. There are people that help youth and the homeless population. And so there's a lot of variety of opportunities to be of support and a lot of lasting organizations that you can just kind of connect with that are already established. So I figured, well, I still didn't know what I wanted to do at that point, but I knew I wanted to help people. So I figured I would just go to school and see what happened. Well, and that's, and that's really neat. Looking back on the previous part of your story this time, it was something that stuck. 
or something right. that you connected with more as far as like long-term, I can make a living off of this. I enjoy doing it every day kind of deal. Yeah. And now as far as the connection with Buddhism and therapy, how does that work for you in your, in all the areas of the things that you do? Cause I know there's a lot, there's wild heart meditation center, there's uh, private practice, and there's um, the work that you do with treatment centers. So how do they come together? If, if they don't, that's fine too. But I, I'm assuming they do in certain areas. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me. I'm a very secular Buddhist in the sense, you know, when I look at the Buddhist teachings, especially the early discourses, which comes from what's called the Tipitaka or the Pali Canon, you know, the Buddha was really a, a psychologist. He didn't speak to metaphysics. He maybe would talk about or mention rebirth, um, but that's just because that was the science of the day. It wasn't even a question. It was just what was. But the Buddha was really interested in the mind and how we suffer, you know, through our misperceptions about our place in the world and through our sense of feeling separate and cut off and how we you know, react automatically to crave pleasant experiences and push away unpleasant experiences, but life has both pleasure and pain. So how through our kind of denial or resistance of experience, we suffer and how we could come to terms better through meditation and through practicing, you know, basic humanistic ethics, uh, how we could come to terms with the joy and the sorrow of life and the beauty and tragedy of life and learn how to sit in those experiences with others and to connect and to diminish our suffering. And that's what my perspective of Buddhism is. And so I see, you know, modern day Western psychology and psychotherapy is really a continuation of this ancient tradition the beautiful thing is that at the time the Buddha didn't have, you know, brain imaging and neuroscience research. It was purely experiential by sitting down in meditation and watching the mind and seeing the mental reactions, you know, and watching the emotional uh, experience of feeling overwhelmed or being reactive come up in meditation and being able to learn to come to terms with that for oneself through direct inquiry by looking into the mind and basically saying, what is this? You know, how is this? How does it feel? What does it need? How, what's the wise response to my inner reactions? And so I see Western psychotherapy as a continuation, all these beautiful uh, people, you know, that came after the Buddha, Sigmund Freud and Anna Freud and, uh, you know, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, like some of the psychoanalysis, Carl Jung, um, you know, Carl Rogers, uh, Marshall Linehan in the modern day kind of third wave psychotherapy. So all these people that have kind of continued this exploration of the mind and human suffering and have found ways to create systems of therapy to help people. And that's what I'm fascinated in is how can we, you know, how can we create supportive systems to help alleviate suffering? And I think that's really what the Buddha was all about. 
Mm. Um, so for me, long story short, <laughs> everything connects with everything else. I think if anything, being a Buddhist practitioner, I wouldn't even say I'm, you know, I would, I guess, say I'm a Buddhist for, for uh, you know, simplicity's sake, but being a Buddhist practitioner, a person that practices these, these uh, teachings and these trainings really um, gives me confidence to be a therapist because, you know, I think a lot of folks want to be helping professionals because they've been helped themselves. Mm. And as I have through recovery, I've gotten support and help from others and it's been invaluable to me and I want to do the same, but remembering why I do it on a daily basis is hard, you know, like keeping the fire going and feeling inspired is, is hard to do. So my Buddhist practice informs why I do what I do. And it makes me feel confident in that because it's more than just a job. It's a mission, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not one that I do perfectly, but it's something that my spiritual practice helps me to continue to connect with. Absolutely. So the, so it naturally, what I, what I've gathered from what you said, it naturally intersects Buddhism and, and therapy. And then as far as your own personal perspective and, and the way that you interact with your profession, no matter what angle it is, um, Buddhism gives you meaning behind it, which is really neat. Yeah. Um, it gives you a yeah, spiritual totally. and purpose. It, right. Yeah, totally. And it also is made easier by the fact that you know, mindfulness has become so popular in the West, which is a Buddhist, you know, meditative practice. And the earliest instructions of how to practice mindfulness came from an ancient text written 2,600 years ago. That's unbelievably descriptive and technical for being so old, you know, and how the West has embraced this aspect of Buddhism. And then we've been able to, which the research is still in its infancy as most research really is because technological advances have only really came about in the last 30, 40 years. But as we start to research the benefits of practicing mindfulness, it gives validity to something that's already been. And so when I teach um, or when I facilitate groups or when I'm with clients, I am able to draw from both this ancient tradition and the Western kind of context of our scientific foundation for it so it kind of gives validity to it too um you know and then there's some aspects which i didn't speak to which i'll just say briefly of the existential aspects of buddhism um that informed therapy uh you know just like for example the acceptance of life and death you know and being able to understand people suffer and that it's not um it's not an abnormal thing to suffer that it's actually normal and we talk about in the mental health diagnostic criteria we call these things disorders you know mental health disorders 
but there's no such thing as order, you know, and not from a like witty, not saying that from like a witty (laughs) perspective, but like a very real human trait is that we suffer and that we don't have normalcy. There's no such thing as normal. And all this stigma around mental health is absurd because everyone has mental health. You know, everyone has a mind. And I know that people suffer. You know, I meet people that are top executives at financing and accounting firms. And I meet folks that are just getting clean and coming from prison. And the suffering's the same. Maybe what they're suffering about is different. But (laughs) having to deal with the human condition and having to deal with separation and loss and relationships and feeling insecure financially and going through transition and all of these things are things that we experience. So that, that aspect is also, um, you know, it helps to have this lens of the Buddha's kind of, uh, he's a realist you know, he's really trying to look at things the way that they are, that birth and death are inevitable aspects of life. And how do we bring compassion to these experiences and help each other through them? Mm. So I think that helps too, is just having that more of the existential framework, like people come into me and some of my clients and say, you know, they're embarrassed to say that they have suicidal thoughts. And, you know, and sometimes I'll, after doing a risk assessment and being professional about it, I'll uh, jokingly tell them, well, you can't kill yourself while I'm seeing you because it'd be very hard for me, you know, and Mm -hmm. they're kind of surprised by my reaction, but it's, you know, wanting to get out of suffering so bad that we want to end our lives is actually not that uncommon. You know, um, now maybe having a plan and wanting to go through with it, that's a heightened risk and something, of course, we need to consider, but uh, professionally, but on the other hand, just validating that experience of human suffering, I think is also something that, I benefited from through practicing Buddhism. Mm. Wow. Yeah. There's so much in there I wanted to comment on. Uh, first, the the mental health. I'm really glad you spoke up about that because that's something um, that's kind of been a topic when I interview people for this podcast is um, the, the potential for labels of um, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar, ADHD, or whatever have you, um, to damage a person's psyche and uh, their self-worth, uh, their level of self-worth. Um, and so I'm glad you brought it up because it, it is mental health is such an overarching term of it for everyone. It doesn't doesn't just pick a person that has, you know, bipolar disorder and they have a mental health issue. No, we all have a mind, as you mentioned, and there are different levels and different experiences of suffering. And so by being in this world, there will be suffering and you will experience that, that therefore mental health is just a way to find healing. Um, And so I think by reframing that and by talking about that, we find that it's safer to for people to speak up and say, yeah, I, I have a lot of stress. Um, I want to work on my mental health. Okay, great. You don't have to be diagnosed with schizophrenia to say that. You don't have to have a right. label of a diagnosis to speak up about your suffering. And, and so I'm glad you said that because I get really psyched about that because it can feel 
it can feel like from what I've observed, if you don't have a diagnosis, you can't speak up. Like, no, your experience is not valid. You don't have an actual right. problem. You just have a lot of math homework and you haven't done it, you know, or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Um, right. So that's one really, I'm glad we, you know, you brought that up. And then that's really interesting about uh, what you mentioned about people coming in and saying, you know, that they're feeling suicidal. And I, I was thinking, um, and I don't know if this is a question or just kind of like a statement, I'm, I'm not sure, but it, as far as the uprising of people feeling suicidal or committing suicide, I wonder if it's the culture or whatever, whatever external thing is making the individual feel like I don't want to live anymore. Or is it that we live in a culture now where people are, are speaking up more? You know, it's kind of like two sides of the yeah. same coin. Right. Um, yeah, totally. And I think it's a combination of those things. I think it's stigma and people feel isolated in their pain. And, you know, I call these the three voices of depression, which is what really makes depression um, difficult to deal with is the belief that I've always felt this way. I'm always going to feel this way. And I'm the only one that feels this way. And the third of those three voices is probably the most destructive, which is the, I'm the only one. And you see this in like the uh, root of the word empathy, you know, I think means something like to feel with. And what is a requirement for people to feel, um, you know, safe and supported uh, or just, regulated I should say in emotional distress is to feel connection and one of the things that happens when we stigmatize and and when I say we stigmatize mental health no one intentionally does this I think it's a you know defense mechanism that all of us have is to appear like we are stable when we're not mm -hmm. um you know, for, and you can think even in evolutionary history for the sake of uh, feeling like you have a formidable, strong tribe, you know, that we can't show our weakness. And, um, you know, but because mental health becomes stigmatized culturally, there's this myth that develops that, um, you know, we don't that suffering is out of the ordinary. It's abnormal. When in fact, it's very normal. It's pretty much a daily experience, even if it's something that's just not getting my way, you know, or I run into traffic and it may sound like a heavy word to say suffering, but it's, it's friction, it's stress, it's feeling overwhelmed or rushed or pressured or needing to keep up with the pace or, you know, not being able to tend to all the things that we feel like we need to, um, you know, and so I think that it's a combination of both of those things that you mentioned, that there's this kind of cultural pressure. And so people feel isolated and alone, like I'm the only one. Um, and then it's also in and of itself, you know, folks have felt unable to cope probably since the beginning of time. It's also kind of a biological and um, internal uh, dysregulation of emotion that 
feel so overwhelming to people that they just want it to stop. And for some people, that's re- that is really hard to relate to because not everyone experiences that type of dysregulation. You know, the, the easiest thing we can do to, if you have an experience like suicidal ideation, to understand it is as if, you know, you've ever had something really not go your way and you've thrown a tantrum about it and, you know, punched a hole in the wall or kicked a chair or it's that type of lashing out anger, but that's turned inward. And so there's just this like unbelievable emotion that explodes internally that is a constant feeling for some people. And it's exhausting. And that's usually what you see in people that want to complete suicide is they're completely exhausted and they feel like there's just no relief and they just want it to stop. Hmm. You know, and that's why I also don't like this. And and this is a hard uh, perspective to take because, you know, like I remember growing up hearing that like suicide was a cowardly way to die. And it's such a, that's such a derogatory and judgmental perspective to have on someone that is experiencing such relentless uh, dysregulation and despair. because, you know, for people, they feel like they can't uh, get a break from this constant suffering. And, you know, and so they, they do the best they can until they feel like they can't anymore. Um, and part of my goal as a therapist and someone that's supporting someone that's experiencing that is to reassure and remind them of the importance of living and to try to help them become more regulated and to notice those experiences where they do feel okay and to build, you know, to build some positive resources to help cope. Um, but, you know, it's another kind of long answer, but I, I agree that it's both kind of internal and external pressures that, mm. that contribute to that. We'll get right back to Curiously Enough after this quick announcement. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and it's a it's a tough topic. Uh, and I mean, I know for myself, I've been in that position, so I can kind of give a personal experience uh, as far as what it feels like and, and whatnot. But, um, and I know that you have experience on the other side professionally. So, but it, regardless, it's still a difficult topic just because we do lose a lot of people um, to suicide. And it's very sad. Um, but I, again, it's another topic I hope that people continue to discuss because it takes away the burn a little bit and it makes it more accessible to discuss that it's a real thing. Um, let's talk about what it does to the mind. Let's talk about what it does to the families. Um, right. uh, you know, I wish I had that when I felt right. that way because I really didn't, I didn't have anything. And so I turned to books <laughs> and I mean, I had my family right. and, and of course, but I didn't have an understanding of what exactly am I going through? Um, I wasn't seeing a therapist at the time. I was just prescribed medication. So uh, I just, yeah, I appreciate this topic because I had to read a lot of books to, and go to a lot of therapy to gain an understanding of what was rooted beneath the, I don't want to live. What was the because blank, you know, what was that? Um, So I think it's important to discuss Um, as far as, meditation goes 
I'm curious what your advice or guidance might be to someone that hasn't meditated before. Um, and I'm sure you experienced this at wild heart meditation, but uh, I wanted to kind of hear your take on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting topic to approach probably because I've been so immersed in it for so long, um, that, you know, how to kind of approach meditation from a beginner's perspective. Uh, my own perspective on that has, has changed quite dramatically over the years. The first thing I would say is that sometimes it depends how we're introduced to mindfulness, but sometimes we have this perspective of here's this, you know, calming, peaceful uh, practice that is starting to pop up and um, it would probably benefit me and I'm going to give it a try and sit down and try to uh, clear my mind, for example. And I would just both validate and warn against that approach. Um, so I think it's important how we approach meditation, uh, kind of ideologically, like what is our perspective on what it's going to do for us um, first? Because you know, practicing meditation is incredibly transformative and helps to develop insight. I mean, watching our own inner reactions and being able to observe our mind more non-judgmentally as kind of an objective awareness, being the observer of experience instead of caught up or indulging in the thoughts um, is hugely powerful. But sometimes we have this kind of misperception that meditation is this like experience when it's more of actually a training than an experience, kind of like running on the treadmill, uh, running on a treadmill. If you're running for the first time, probably is not going to be a fun experience, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's a, uh, you know, but maybe afterwards you'll feel a little bit better. You know, maybe you'll have more energy, even that first time you run. So mindfulness is at both hand. I mean, it's going to provide some, uh, tranquility and introspection and it's going to bring up and put you in touch with your feelings so that's one of the things that I would say is just to try to look at like why are we coming to the practice and to just better understand that we're going to get the full range of our human psychology and in our human emotions when we meditate and to not expect that the meditation practice is going to help us clear our mind because the mind thinks just like the eyes see you don't tell your eyes if you're born with that ability you don't tell your eyes to stop seeing you know if you're born with the ability to hear you don't tell your ears to stop hearing we can't tell our mind to stop thinking we can't clear the mind but we can you know more calmly observe our thoughts and let them come and go without getting maybe too so stuck in un or destructive mental patterns or habits uh, like rumination or mental proliferation, which I call lawyer mind, which is the tendency to kind of become uh, fascinated with all the causes of our suffering and build a big dramatic story in the mind for it. Um, you know, these are things that we can see in meditation and can work through, not so much that we're going to clear away. So I would say that's a big point that I stress a lot now when I'm talking to people about practicing meditation is it's a training it's not an experience 
Um, also, I like that the Buddha, when giving instructions to people on how to live a holistic life and to find more ease in their life, meditation was a part of his teaching, but he also taught very strongly uh, ethics. And I call this behavioral psychology, which is just learning how to do things that are in line with our values. So this means, you know, looking at our behavior, how, what are the ways that we cause ourselves and others harm and start working on those things? And what are ways that we're dishonest and how can we be more transparent? Um, and how can we be careful with our sexuality and practice wise consumption? What do we take into our bodies? And, you know, these are things that are not commandments or moral codes. They're, their mindfulness practices. And I think starting with behavior is key because it's hard to sit down and meditate and to find any stability and introspection when the mind is riddled with anxiety because we're living, you know, we're partying until three in the morning and doing cocaine and you know, waking up in the morning, like at, at 1 PM and missing classes. And, you know, if everything else is, uh, or even if we're just in a high pace, job and we're workaholic, you know, we have to look at some somewhat at our behavior um, because the mind and our behavior are deeply connected. So if we take care of our external world and our actions, then we take care of the mind. And if we take care of the mind, we take care of our actions. So that's another kind of long-winded answer. But those two things are very important. Our perspective on what we're going to get, kind of dropping expectations, realizing it's a training, it's going to take time, and also looking at our behavior. And then if you're going to get involved just directly into the practice, you know, finding a um, meditation app like Headspace or Insight Timer to help to guide the meditation is really helpful. Setting yourself a short and attainable goal, like I'm going to meditate every day for 15 minutes, no matter what, for 30 days. You know, I actually like challenging ourselves to, to start new habits because most of the time it's something like, oh, I'm interested in meditation. I know it could benefit me. It seems really cool and something I like. And we do it once or twice and say, oh, it didn't really work or whatever. So it's a, something that we've got to kind of trick ourselves into by having some routine or challenging ourselves to a structure, getting the app or something like that to support you, or finding a meditation group in your local city, especially big cities have free Buddhist sitting groups a lot of the time. Mm. So you can usually search like whatever the name of your city is, and then the word insight meditation. So like uh, Nashville insight meditation, and you'll probably find two or three different meditation centers that are donation based you can just go and get instructions and find some community um, and then books you know there's a really great book by a guy named dan harris called 10 Percent happier mm. uh, where he talks about he kind of like a, he's a skeptic so he talks about his experience of how he found mindfulness and what it's done for him and um you know and there are a ton of other really wonderful authors both male and female authors there's a lady named tara brock who wrote a book called radical acceptance and you know so that's something there's a there's a lot there you have to forgive me for being long-winded because this is what i do every day is talk to people about meditation but you know i think those are three things to consider is what is our perspective in approaching it in the first place you know do we consider it a training 
and how do we practice aligning our behavior with our values so it's it's maybe easier to convince ourselves or to take the time to meditate and then third finding the resources to do it Hmm. yeah no don't apologize that was great thank you for that um and it clarified some stuff even for me that i had forgotten i just forgot about um i i remember i was in a philosophy class and um It was my first real introduction to Buddhism. We were studying a lot of different things, but my teacher was a practitioner of Buddhism. And um, he had our assignment was that every day we would meditate for five minutes and he would up it. I think it started with two minutes and he would up it as the semester went on and we would have to log what happened in the meditation. If nothing happened, that's fine. What happened after? What time of day was it? And um I loved it because I, like you said, I loved the challenge, but so many people were complaining. Um, Why doesn't my mind stop? And and that's what Mm kind of made me want to ask you that because I know so many people that maybe enter meditation and are expecting a quick fix are so concerned with the fixing part that they're not just like in it. Um, And I remember like, why don't you guys get it? Like it's, it's, it's the beginning. Of course it's going to be like that. Like I was so frustrated because these people just had never meditated before and I had, so I I knew what kind of a little bit, what the experience was going to be like. I'm not going to say like, Oh, I know all about meditation, but I, I know, I knew what it was like for me. Um, right. But the big complaint was that I can't stop my mind and I'm just, I just think about too much. It doesn't, I can't do it. It doesn't work for me. And I thought that was right. so funny, like that it doesn't work for you. Like you just decided that who, where did you get that from? <laughs> you know, yeah, um, totally. I like to, I like to think about the, you know, like mindfulness practice or one of the ways to think about it. Cause there are many is that you have this thing called attention. That's like a 12 year old kid and your attention has been following your thoughts most of your life. And so we think that we are our mind because our attention is so pulled to the mind. Now, we can't stop thinking, like I said earlier, just like you can't stop seeing or hearing. It's just a part of what's happening. But you can redirect your attention from thoughts to something else, like your breath or the sounds or the feeling of your body. And the more that you practice redirecting your attention to the breath or sounds of the body, the more space you get from your mind. So you start to see your mind as not such a personal thing. It's just, it's just the mind, you know, and your attention doesn't have to follow every thought or indulge in every thought for so long. We can become aware in the moment when the attention is grabbed hold of, and we can notice the thought without judgment and we can make the decision to let the thought go. Even if it's just for a second or two, even if the attention goes right back to the thought, that's fine. But every time you acknowledge the thought and redirect, you know, you're getting a little bit of space. And then you start to see the mind as just this almost like an annoying roommate that you're kind of stuck with or, you know, or a little kid that just wants your attention. And we don't have to pay attention to every thought. So it's not so much about clearing the mind, which is a common misperception, but it's about having a healthy relationship to the mind. Mm. So I like to almost rather tell people to think about mindfulness as like having a, a... you know, experience we call thinking that we're going, that we're stuck with, that we're going to have to learn how to create a kind and friendly relationship to, but also set some healthy boundaries with our mind. 
and being able to tell our mind when it brings up the story about our ex for the 80th time and, you know, how we're going to be alone forever to be able to tell our mind, Hey, thanks for sharing. You, you know, tell me that a lot. I appreciate it, but not right now, you know? And, and, and so we have a gentle relationship to, the experience and I appreciate you sharing that because that's definitely number one on the list of what I hear from people is they get frustrated I can't stop my mind I say well how about you stop trying to stop your mind <laughs> you know uh, but I get it because that's exactly what I thought meditation was when I started practicing yeah no it's it's a it's becoming more common too for I mean, there's meditation books out there and and people are talking about it more and more, which is great, but there's still a lot of people who just won't go near it. And I know people that didn't for a while because of the way that it was described to them. Um, So that's why Mm -hmm. I like, I loved your description because the simpler the description can be, the more likely, the the more um, likelihood that someone's going to try it. You know, it's all about right. um, how we, we phrase it too, because it is such a bizarre thing to try to explain, <laughs> I guess. Sure, it is. <laughs> I mean, it really I is. I don't even know what it is. It is, you know, it's not an experience, but it's a practice, but it is kind of an experience. Once you practice it, it becomes, you know, it's, yeah. it's very, um, I can't think of the word today, but um, ubiquitous maybe. Um, uh-huh. No, you're definitely right. It is, it is to this day, I, I joke with people that I facilitate groups with, it's like my definition for mindfulness has changed probably 25 times in the course of the past five years. You know, it is notoriously hard to talk about and it's, but yet it's so simple, which that's mm-hmm. like describes so much of life, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, you hit the nail on the head with that. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say that's, that's like every self-help book I've read. They're all trying to say a similar thing, which I appreciate. I I value that. Um, They're all trying to say a similar thing in a different way, but it is, it's very simple. It's just some people hear things certain ways and uh, they connect and relate to certain things when it's described differently than they've heard before, maybe more scientifically or less scientifically or more spiritually, you know, it's, just kind of depends on who you hear it from, but thank you. Your response was, right. um, I really enjoyed that one. Um, as yeah, far as sure. when, so when people, you know, come to you and say, I haven't meditated there, there's that answer. But as far as when being around people that are, that are suffering and, and are having a hard time, whether it's at wild heart meditation or treatment centers or your private practice, um, how do you, find ways to separate yourself from that suffering while also connecting? Um, and how do you take care of yourself in, in the field of helping other people? Mm. Yeah, that's a big one. I mean, I think it's a constant practice of being a helping professional to make sure that we are you know, aware of the fact that we're emotional beings and that we're impacted by and sensitive to others' experiences. And so when you're, you know, working day in and day out with emotional uh, distress and trauma um, and even the excitement of people's meeting, you know, people meeting their, their own goals, 
you know, you have to learn how to take a step back and to be supportive, but not enmeshed in that emotional, uh, you know, that emotional sensitivity. So it's, yeah, it's a constant practice. In Buddhism, we have something called equanimity, which is this practice of being able to be with an experience, but not be consumed by it. And it's definitely easier said than done, but it's more of kind of a daily inquiry. And some things that help are, one, structural uh, support helps to prioritize my own mental health. Like, you know, making sure that I schedule, and this is something that you learn over time, but schedule um, your work in a healthy way, you know, meaning like I'll take 15 minute breaks between clients or I'll make sure that I won't do an evening group when I've just done a seven hour workshop or, you know, like very simple time management stuff, making sure that I commit to my own mindfulness practice. I'll practice meditation between clients um, I'm in recovery, so I go to 12-step meetings a couple times a week and talk to my support group. So part of it that helps me to stay balanced is just kind of like setting up the commitments to my own mental health and making sure that I don't sacrifice those commitments, that I keep them. Um, and when I start, when some of those things start dropping off, that's when I need to be more alert and aware. Um, the other thing is more experientially is to learn how to be present without being consumed. And so, and there's some interesting psychological theory around this too, about how they call it marking emotions, about how caregivers mark uh, infant emotions and, and therefore teach infants that their emotions are safe to feel. For example, like when a kid falls and hurts his knee, scrapes his knee, Mom or dad may make the sound, oh, you know, which is like a feeling of or a vocalization of them feeling that pain. So mm -hmm. they'll mark the emotion and then the infant will look and see, oh, that my caregiver, and this isn't conscious, of course, but they see my caregiver understands what just happened to me and they seem to know what this feels like but then the caregiver will soothe which is to show that they're not the emotion they're outside of it so they're able to say oh and they'll say you're okay let's go wash it off and you know or whatever it may be so we have to learn how to do this with other people too which is to be able to empathize and of course this is like level five jedi type <laughs> practice but uh uh which means you know for me that I have a long way to go, but to be able to empathize with people, but also not be consumed means that we're able to understand emotions, but it's okay to also stand outside of them and to let the people that we work with know that we're here to support. And that means that I have to take good enough care of myself to be in a place to where I feel confident I can be of service. Um, and that's really hard because in long-term therapists will know this because there are life events and circumstances and sometimes you go into work and, you know, you, you just are experiencing the death of your mother or father or, you know, uh, like you're moving or having a new kid or, 
you know, whatever, going through a breakup, these things affect us. And it's hard to stay present and empathetic um, and equanimous when we've got real life shit showing up, you know? So, um, but that's another thing that I try to just work on is, is that equanimity of being able to be with, but not be consumed. Um, I've been in therapy myself for four and a half years. You know, so some of those things also are crucial. I have a supervisor that I meet with weekly. Um, so those things definitely help. There's also an interesting for what it's worth for, DBT therapists, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, they have something that they call consult group, which is really cool. You'll get this at inpatient treatment centers where you have like a treatment team and you staff your cases. You talk about your clients with the treatment team and they help you to conceptualize the treatment plan and to offer support for working with, with clients. So it's like a support group for therapists. Um, but also a professional treatment planning group. And that is amazing. I think it should be a requirement for therapists, but I think before they require more from therapists, they need to pay them more. But <laughs> I think, you know, that that's a, that's a huge thing too, is getting support from other people in the, in the field. Yeah. Oh no, that's awesome. I didn't know that was a, a real thing that happened. Um, I've never yeah. heard of that. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. But because I, and thank you for sharing all the ways that you have found, uh, a way of balancing between, um, being there for those that need your help and you're also required to, to be there because they're paying you. So there's a, um, I feel like a certain amount of pressure that maybe people in this field face, um, to you know show up and show up good every single time um Mm. and i think what i learned recently watching my therapist and um observing and even hearing certain things that she said is wow you're just human and i think Mm -hmm. that is also uh something important to learn because if, if therapists or people in the self-help field, regardless, uh, the, f- the field of helping others, um, instead of the pressure of thinking I have to show up and show up good every single time, yes, but also you're human and patients know that. Right. Um, yeah. And even as patients go, or clients going in and saying, I know this person is just human, but they have a, a wealth of knowledge and um, expertise and experience and they're going to help me, but they are human first. But that, that's really neat. And I liked the way that you described the way that you balance that and the, uh, the Mark emotion theory, that was really interesting. Yeah. I find that fascinating how a lot of the things we learn early on in life, we continue to need to practice as we get older. It's like, yeah, we've all kind of grown up, but not really. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And, and I've, you know, I, I asked that question to some people on uh, this podcast because I know just being someone that likes to empathize with others. Um, for, from my experience, I like to hear, how are you doing? Tell me honestly. I want to hear it. I want to be here for you. I don't need to say anything, but I will be a listener. I know how exhausting that is with a friend. Um, not yeah. in a bad way, just like it is really exhausting to be present and, and offer everything I have to you right now. Um, so I can't imagine doing that 
I mean, I can, cause I've wanted to be a therapist for quite some time, but <laughs> you know, like really what happens when that is your profession. Um, right. You, know. and you said something earlier that's important too, is that like, um, I forgot how you said it, which reminded me of this, but also, you know, therapists, it, this becomes our livelihood. And so another thing that uh, is maybe a little taboo to talk about, but very important is that it's a profession and that you make money doing it. And so anything that threatens financial security becomes a very uh, overwhelming uh, task. And so when you've got four or five clients a day and maybe your rate is 80 bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever it may be. And then, you know, you're really not feeling it, but you know, if you miss the day, you're going to miss out on a few hundred bucks. And so you go in anyway, you know, these are things that we need to reconcile within ourselves as well as like our relationship to money and, fi and finances and learning how to be ethical with, um, can I really accept uh, payment if I'm not really fully here? And am I being ethical and charging people for services when I really need a mental health day or whatever, I'm sick? And so especially when you get into private practice as a therapist, if you don't have a consult group, you become a little bit isolated. And I found that, you know, we're rationalizing beings our our latest adaptation of our brain neuroscientists say its job is to rationalize the drives of our lower brains and so we rationalize when we get isolated and and that's another thing is just staying on top of that kind of ethical integrity and recognizing yeah we get paid to do this and that means that sometimes we're going to have to really save up and be responsible with our money and have money saved for sick time and stuff like that so we can show up in in the best way for people mm. yeah yeah and that's a whole nother topic too is the or the category right. of ethics and and also yeah um how you show up and how are you how's the relationship with yourself enough to say i can't do this today or i can but this is right. what i need to do to be present and to ethically make the exchange of money and services um, and also right. like great point, which is again, a whole nother huge topic of just anyone really is how do we think about money and what are our beliefs about it? Um, because even, even beginning to start this podcast and write a book, I've had to rewire my brain a little bit and say, I'm charging for these services because I need to make sure that I can eat and drink and have a roof over my head so that I can keep doing it for those that need it. Um, right. But not everybody thinks that way. <laughs> and I, yeah. you know, I catch myself going back to, well, 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 isn't this a world where we just constantly need more money? You know, and I have to rewire again and say, no, I'm doing this. You know, um, it gets tricky. So, uh, right. It, it totally does. And that's one of those taboos in um, not to go into it further because you're right. It is a whole nother topic. But two things that people struggle with more than anything else when they come to see me as far as situational circumstantial experiences external or our relationships and finances you know and it's it's one of those things it's like the therapist themselves has to look at those aspects of life and those are huge areas of uh of human suffering if we're talking on that category absolutely you know? absolutely um 
Well, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. To kind of wrap it all up, I like to ask people, um, do you have a quote or saying that you live by or turn to on a regular basis? One that comes to mind, I'm not sure if this pronunciation of his name is correct. Milan Kundra says, speed, the demon of speed is often associated with forgetting and with avoidance and slowness with memory and confronting. We move, we move slowly when we want to listen to ourselves. We move slowly when we want to listen to others in the world around us. We move slowly when we want to accept ourselves. The rush of contemporary life overwhelms us in our ability to observe, to hear, to stop, and to wonder. Society and its speed wants to blow out the tiny flame of memory. And I like this quote so much because it speaks to so much of what mindfulness is for me, which has to do with memory. And he says that society and its speed wants to blow out the tiny flame of memory. I think that we know that we want to live fulfilling lives, but we forget because we get caught up mm-hmm. and that we have to remind ourselves. And so much of spiritual practice and my own journey in mental health has been about just remembering to connect with what's important on a daily basis. And if we can just do that thing over and over and over and over again, we reaffirm our faith in what we're really trying to do here, which is to show up for life in the fullest way and to not get so consumed by all of these societal, interpersonal, financial pressures, you know, because when we're pressured, we don't act, we react. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love that quote a lot and I love how he calls it the demon of speed. And then there's another quote by Maya Angelou, which I will maybe paraphrase, but it's something like, she just talks about courage and she said that courage is the most important of all of the virtues because without it, you can't do any other virtue consistently. She said, mm-hmm. you can be anything erratically too kind or too just or too fair to be, you can be any of those things occasionally, but to do those things time and time again demands that you have courage. Mm. And, and I like that because I think that being willing to, you know, live a meaningful life and to have that as the number one priority, whatever that looks like, and that changes over time, but to have that as a priority means that we have to be courageous. It means we have to really let go a lot of what we think we have to do. Uh, That is kind of a a trick that we fall into because of fear or because of insecurity or because of pressure. Um, So I like like, uh, her emphasis on courage because that's been the one consistent principle I think that I've needed more than anything else is just to not give up, to keep keep going, Mm. you know? Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing both of those. Uh, Maya Angelou has uh, so many good ones. It's hard to pick if I were even to pick one of my favorites of just hers, let alone in general, but yeah, thank you. Those were, uh, those hit home and definitely were great way to sum up what you brought here today. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of this and being willing to share your story and share about your profession why you do it. Of course. So happy to do it. And thanks so much, Grace. Keep going with all the great work that you're doing. I'm excited to see uh, what comes down the road for you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Curiously Enough. Be sure to come back here next Friday for episode number four. 
and stay tuned for big surprises that we're revealing today. So look at our Instagram at Grace Googs to follow along with our journey. And don't forget to check out Andrew Chapman, our guest today on the podcast. His links are below in the info and his podcast, Wild Heart Meditation Center. We'll see you next week. 